the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed he is. They checked my ID at the door and let me in anyway. (laughs) Good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is the Wednesday, December 13th edition of Lifeline. Trust you're having a good week so far. Kind of getting ready to sort of ease into uh, one of the final uh, shopping weekends, second to last shopping weekend before the holidays. I'll get you my shirt size a little bit later on in tonight's program. Thank you. Meanwhile, great to have you with us for another edition of Lifeline. Hey, speaking a moment ago of the Bay Area Rescue Mission, let me again put out the call. We mentioned this last night. The Bay Area Rescue Mission is in desperate need of about 150 volunteers to pull off a very special event. We've been talking about this, their annual gospel Christmas celebration for homeless and impoverished children. That is scheduled for Friday, December the 22nd at the Richmond Civic Center Auditorium. Now, last year, almost 1,900 needy children showed up, and we're expecting to easily meet, if not exceed, that number because of what's been going on with the loss of all the homes up in the Santa Rosa region. And so lots of work to be done in preparing and then actually putting on this event. They are expecting, again, almost 2,000 kitties, and they need about 150 additional volunteers. So if you've got some time to invest in the community, between the hours of oh, about 10.30 a.m. and 3.30 p.m. on Friday, December the 22nd, a week from this coming Friday. We need your help. You can get information online by going to bayarearescue.org and click on the Get Involved button to sign up as volunteers must be pre-registered. So again, church, your men's group, women's group, maybe some guys from the office, whatever. If you can come down, volunteer a few hours to help out the community and to support the Bay Area Rescue Mission in this outreach for needy kids at Christmas, we would sure appreciate it. Information again on the web at bayarearescue.org. Just click on the Get Involved tab to sign up. Today, House Democratic Leader Nancy Pelosi accusing Republicans of rushing to pass a massive tax overhaul behind closed doors. Big tax break for corporate America at the expense of our veterans, our children, America's working families. This is really a disgrace. If they have a bipartisan bill, it will be far more popular than the monstrosity they put together behind closed doors, which I think, again, they will pay a price for a big price for in 2018. Indeed, Chuck Schirmer's there saying Republicans will be held accountable in next year's midterm elections. In a Capitol briefing today, Pelosi called the process, quote, dishonest and said working families will be ripped off while the nation's wealthiest people and corporations will be rewarded. Now, the 479-page bill that uh, showing, at least before the final version, had many handwritten notes in the margins was provided to senators at 5 p.m. Friday, less than nine hours before 
voting on it. Now, just to put this in perspective, with this big rush to perhaps present us either with an early Christmas gift or maybe a lunk of coal in American stockings, the last time Congress passed a comprehensive tax reform bill was clear back in 1986. That was during the Reagan administration. And at that time, more than 450 witnesses testified before the House Ways and Means Committee and the Senate Finance Committee held 33 days of hearings. So what's the big rush? And are there as many surprises in this as some are suggesting? Well, to provide some insights, we're joined now by Adam Michelle. Adam is policy analyst for the Heritage Foundation's Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. His specialty, in fact, is in the arena of tax policy and the federal budget. And Adam, great to have you on the program. Just your overall sense as you've been following. Of course, this is going to eventually be worked out in committee between the two sides. But ultimately, looking at what you've seen so far, presented in both the Senate and the House versions, of this tax reform bill, is it all that it's cracked up to be? Uh, it's not all that it's cracked up to be, but it's certainly uh, a, a large step in that direction. The, the A lot of the rhetoric around this bill is, is, is overblown and trying to make, uh, make things out of it that it's not. It is what it is, is a large middle-class tax cut. It's also a pro-growth and pro-American worker uh, tax bill, and that's the, by making America a more competitive place to do business, it will allow businesses to expand, to hire more Americans, to eventually wa- raise their wages because of the different additional jobs and competition for workers. So there's there's a lot to like here, and and I, I'm excited to to see what comes out of conference. Here's the tough question. How much is there in this measure to dislike, particularly for those of us that live in states like California? So far, we're hearing some numbers when you talk about elimination of uh, deductions for everything from uh, local and state taxes to um, caps on mortgage interest deductions and certainly equally um, dealing with or addressing the issue of what we can deduct for um, the property taxes. It sounds like some of this is not going to be all that healthy for Californians. So there's a couple points there. One, the, the the cap on mortgage interest deduction is only going forward. Everyone that currently has has purchased a house is grandfathered in, so there, there's no change there. And and then for the majority uh, of of Californians and and folks in high cra- uh, high tax states across the country. The, the, something like 85 or 90 percent of folks will still will take the standard deduction and won't, and it'll make more sense for them not to write off their their state and local taxes uh, just because the standard deduction is being doubled for for all families. That's going for for, Amer- for married folks from 12,000 to 24,000. And then the question is that that last 10 or 15 percent of folks that that. Uh, that currently write off their state and local taxes and will continue under this bill, what is left for them? And right now that's still being negotiated, but it looks like there will be a $10,000 cap for, uh, for property tax or income tax, and, and that will continue to be a large benefit for, for Californians. The, the, the really truth of the matter is that states around the country are right now, right now are subsidizing the, the highest uh, marginal income tax rates in the country in California that those top income earners in California get to write off 40% of of, the, of those that top marginal rate and that has to be paid for 
by everyone else around the country, and that's that's just on its face not fair. Well, isn't it also true that California, with the largest population and some of the highest income levels, also pays more than its lion's share into the federal coffers? Doesn't that that offset any of that uh, difference between the deductibility in, in, say, poorer states versus California? So the the relevant comparison is uh, an taxpayer that is earning the same amount of money in California, say, or New York, and and in a different state. If the just because a state has more high income people, that the, the the relevant comparison is earning the same amount of money across the board. So the numbers I have off the top of my head: someone that's living in in New York versus someone that's living in ten, Tennessee. Someone that's currently is living in New York. Can deduct that's making between fifty and seventy-five thousand dollars a year can deduct on average about three thousand dollars off their federal tax return. Where that, where that exact same person living in Tennessee, on average, can only deduct about nine hundred dollars off of their their federal tax return. So, it's the uh, having two people that have the exact same income being able to deduct vastly different amounts from their federal tax liability is that's that's the, where the sort of underlying unfairness comes from. The one thing that perhaps is going to prove to be painful, and we'll talk about this more after the break, and that is some of these caps that when it comes to things like, for example, uh, property taxes, California has some of the highest in the state in spite of Proposition 13, and of course, or in the nation rather, and Proposition 13 really only benefits people that have been in their property for a longer period of time. And so for ter- first-time home buyers, new home buyers, they in particular might be hardest hit by this measure. We'll talk about that potential fallout from this as we continue our look at the proposal. It is the biggest proposal to reform taxes in the country in, my goodness, more than 30 years. Is it all that it's stacked up to be? Our conversation with Adam Michelle, policy analyst for the Heritage Foundation's Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies continues right after this. All right, 516. We're going to slip over to the KFAX Traffic Center quite quick, get you an update on this Wednesday ride home with Michael Bennett. Hey, Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. 20 minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. here on the Wednesday edition of Lifeline. We're visiting today with Adam Michelle. Adam is policy analyst for the Heritage Foundation's Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. Earlier today, Adam, the uh, president in a, a news conference called this bill, quote, vital to the American people for many reasons. He talks about um, uh, this being good not only for business but working families of our country. And then he goes on to quote numbers. He says, and I quote, the typical family for earning 75000 will see an income tax cut of $2,000. So that's $2,000 in their pocket additional to spend on whatever they want to spend, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Here's where I think it becomes complicated in California. Uh, the number, you've mentioned it, the president mentioned it, somewhere in that fifty dollars to $75,000 a year range, which, of course, is not anywhere near the realm of what we are earning here in California, nor what we are spending. Let me use Santa Clara as an example, where the median income in Santa Clara County is $94,000 a year, and the median home price is $1,162,000 a year. 
If we have a cap, for example, on the property taxes of a deduction of only $10,000, that means every median income family with living in a medium-priced home in Santa Clara County that they purchased within the last couple of years is going to see approximately a $7,000 increase to their taxes or increased exposure because the seventeen, almost $18,000 a year or more that they pay in property taxes will now only be deductible up to the first $10,000. That seems to me that the challenge here is that the definition of what is fair and a median income in one part of the country is not fair and the median income in another part of the country, seemingly punishing states like California. So so there's a whole lot of other things going on in this bill, including lowering tax rates across the board, which compensates for a lot of the the other moving pieces that, that you just mentioned. But but, but you're right. This is the problem with having a tax code that has these built-in subsidies for various different things across the board. If any time you try to change one, one lever, it, it's automatically affecting different people differently because cost of living is different. The size of houses, the amount of tax revenue paid is different. And, and all of those things go, go into to our federal taxes, unfortunately. So the part of it, what this bill is trying to do is is get rid of all of those special carve-outs to hopefully bring down the rate for, for everyone across the board so, so that, so that there, there isn't this inequity it built into the federal tax code. See, and the problem, and I guess it all comes down to a matter of semantics, and I, and I don't intend this to, to sound like I'm picking on you, so put the disclaimer up front, but you say, <laughs> hopefully. And, and we've heard similar language uh, from the likes of Mitch McConnell, uh, who talked about, you know, this is going to be a tax incre- a decrease for everybody in the country. Then he had to come back and, and correct those statements. Uh, numbers uh, of uh, leaders within the Republican side had promised um, all, all kinds of wonderful things, including uh, sugar cane, candy. And, and puppy dogs to come along with this tax um, revitalization, and yet the reality is not everyone is going to save money. And I think what Californians are struggling with, at least certainly what I'm hearing from my audience here in the San Francisco Bay Area, is a lot of deductions that we rely upon in order to get by. That's everything from medical expense deductions to if you get a new job, you'll no longer be able to deduct the cost of moving. Um, state and local income tax deduction we mentioned goes away. State and local t- sales tax deduction goes goes away here in California, highest in the nation. Deduction for work-related employee expenses disappears. A cap, as we mentioned, uh, on property taxes at $10,000. And so then suddenly there's this creeping sense of, of inequity that Californians are feeling. And as we're hearing... You know, there's two-plus trillion dollars in offshore accounts that corporate America, with reducing the corporate income tax rate to something that is, quite frankly, more reflective of the rest of the planet, seems logical, seems fair. I think where the fairness disappears is... We're going to reduce income tax rates. We're going to allow all that money to come back into the country. And yet corporate America is not losing any of their business deductions the way private Americans in in states like California are. And there's a level at which that just doesn't seem to be fair. I agree with you on that point. The the, the corporate deduction for state and local taxes should also go away. I wish they removed all of it across the board, including they did not even allowing 10, uh, 10K for, for individuals, but also removing it for, for, for businesses. That would have allowed them to 
bring down rates for both individuals and businesses even further. And this is this is as we started started this conversation that I don't think this tax reform is perfect, and by no means do I think it's going to be a tax cut for every single person in the United States. There's there's a good there's seven to ten percent of people that probably will see a tax increase, and many of those may be in California. And that's I wish rates came down further to uh, to compensate for a lot of that. But this the the business tax reform bringing down that rate from the current high. Of 35 percent, which is the highest in, in the developed world, down to 20 percent, will will be a benefit for all Americans. That 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 allows businesses to invest in more capital, expand their factories, hire more Americans, and and that's some that's something that we just see in the data. Every time another country around the world has lowered their corporate taxes, workers' wages have gone up because businesses are forced to compete for for more workers, which means they have to raise their wages, and that's. That's, for me, where the real benefit of this happens. But ha- haven't workers' from. wages overall in this country been stagnant, you know, uh, you know certainly that's, adjusted for inflation going back to the 1970s? And, and that's, that's a, big, a big part of the problem is I, I, not back to – I don't think it's back to quite the 1970s when you factor in full compensation packages. But over the last 10-plus uh, years, uh, businesses have – been actually decreasing the amount of investment they're doing in the United States. Capital per worker, this measurement of, of business investment per worker in the United States has gone negative in a couple of years in the past uh, eight or so years. And that and that is what drives workers' wages to increase is productivity. And what you need for increased productivity is an additional investment in the workforce. And so this and it, it's because we're uncompetitive globally that businesses no longer want to invest in America. So this tax reform is really, really targeted at that part of the economy, that problem with wages stagnating, that problem with businesses not creating enough jobs. This, this tax reform bill, I believe, does do an excellent job at reversing a lot of those trends. But does it put any conditions? Is there, what do they say in computing language, if-then statements? In other words, if we do this, then you must do that. And I, and I, I pose that question because, for example, here in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, we saw in 2010 the cessation of the partnership between General Motors and Toyota, the, um, the mark or the brand Pontiac disappeared, so General Motors said, well, we're no longer making that brand. We no longer need to have a presence at the factory in Fremont, California. We're pulling out of the deal. In turn, Toyota said, well, if they're leaving, we really can't sustain this on our own. So guess what? We're closing down the only automotive manufacturing plant in the state of California. A couple of years go by, into town rides Elon Musk. God bless Elon and Tesla. We've got a buzzing factory over here again. They are benefiting from not only tons of investment from people on Wall Street, but tons of tax benefits and tax credits to bring them here and keep them here. And yet, here's what's happened. The average worker's wages in 2010 under Toyota was about $32 an hour. Today, the average worker's wages are about $20 an hour, in spite of the fact that Toyota and General Motors receive nowhere near the tax goodies and benefits that Tesla is receiving. And so the the question, I guess, becomes, we're going to reduce taxes for corporations 
We all talk about how this is going to bring a great influx of cash back home to the U.S. shores. There's going to be greater investment. We're going to see Apple and Google and all of these major corporations that are holding millions, billions of dollars overseas repatriate that money, and that money is going to get back into the system. It's going to create more jobs. But there there doesn't seem to be, from what I've read so far, any if thens to this tax bill that would say, if you bring the money back, then you must do this. There doesn't seem to be anything that's going to compel them to actually follow through on everybody on everything everybody says they're going to do. So I, I would posit that the then statements aren't actually affected. As you pointed out, the the the, the special breaks that were given to Tesla saying if you come to California, you get this special tax benefit. That's not the way to create robust economic growth and jobs. The, the way to do it is to treat everyone the same and, increase, and, and create an incentive for businesses regardless of what they're doing and regardless of, of which specific plant and which specific state they're going to open. If, if we say, if, if you come and invest in the United States, you get a competitive rate that's similar to all the other countries around the world. That's how you get true, broad-based investment in, in the economy. It, it's, this, it's these specialized deals that provide relief to just certain activities that are privileged, that are decided on by the state or federal government that, that, re, that don't produce the type of benefits that we're talking about. It's, these, it's, the, it's the opening the floodgates for, for all investment that, that this bill does, and that's, and that's why I think it's different than, than what you were just describing. Adam Michelle is with us, policy analyst for the Heritage Foundation's Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. Information, of course, on the web at heritage.org. We'll take a brief time out, come back to some closing comments from Adam Michelle as this edition of Lifeline continues. 5.31 on the clock. Once again, an update on traffic with Michael Bennett. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back for some closing comments from Adam Michelle, policy analyst for the Heritage Foundation's Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. One of the questions, Adam, that, that's kind of lingering in the background is as corporations are getting excited about the possibility of tax reductions and, and some Americans, although maybe not all Californians, uh, one of the big underlying questions remains What's this going to do in terms of the overall impact to federal deficits? We're at $20 trillion, and we're getting ready to raise that ceiling yet again. Uh, there had been some assertions made that in the, the effort here to reduce federal revenue, potentially by more than $1.4 trillion, would not increase federal deficits, an assertion that we know ultimately has been contradicted by the Congressional Budget Office. What do you think in terms of what is the potential economic impact to the deficit with this proposal? Yeah, whenever we talk about the tax taxes and the debt, we have to start with the understanding that we didn't get $20 trillion in debt because we haven't taxed people enough. This is, this is a spending problem on its face. We, we, the more money, way more money floods out of the federal government than we take in. And under current law, we're projected to, to bring in more revenue as a percent of GDP uh, out over the next 10 years. And we're still not any, none of that is used to pay down the debt. Instead, we continue to, to spend more than we should. So, so 
putting that aside, the, this tax reform will will certainly not pay for itself. But what it will do is grow the economy up to about three uh, percent larger than it otherwise would be. And once it gets to that three percent larger, it will cover all of the costs or, mo- or almost all of the costs of the tax reform. So really what we're talking about is a one-time reduction in federal revenue of about 1%. And, and so in the grand scheme of a $43 trillion uh, tax revenue intake over 10 years, a 1% reduction in that is, is a small price to pay for a significantly larger economy, uh, many, many more jobs, uh, raises for Americans on average, for an average family around uh, $4,000. When you you start adding up all the good things that come from tax reform, not to mention the tax cuts for for most Americans, this is, uh, I'm, I'm really not concerned about the overall deficit impact. Finally, when the president says that this could potentially impact GDP to, quote, four, five, even six percent as possible, is that really possible? Uh, I think five percent is probably on the upper end of, of reasonable. Um, our estimates put it around three percent a larger economy uh, after everything goes into effect. But that is still a, a huge benefit to the average American. As I mentioned before, that three percent larger translates into an average raise for for an American family of about four thousand dollars a year, and, and that's and that's re- that's real money. It may not be instantaneous, but but that that's those are real economic effects that are uh, largely agreed upon in academic literature and across the board. Adam, we appreciate your time and uh, your insights on this topic. There is Adam Michelle, policy analyst for the Heritage Foundation's Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. And again, his specialty is tax policy and the federal budget. More information available on the web at heritage.org. A couple of thoughts, if I might. Um, so he's indicating that the president's estimate GDP could go up to 5%, 6%, maybe a little bit enthusiastic, but they see 3% as certainly doable. Um, the reality or the, the irony is that historically and up to the economic downturn of 2007-2008, we had a GDP that hovered around 2.5-3%. So you're talking about returning to historic norms, not necessarily making this giant leap forward. Uh, the other bit, I, I think, of, of a wake-up call here um, is this, that the fact of the matter is, particularly in states like California, New York, Connecticut, those of us that live in, yes, high-income states, but also high-taxation states, we stand to see higher tax bills because of the elimination or curtailment of many of these deductions. And quite frankly, that's just the facts. And that is not coming from a partisan standpoint. That is from the Joint Committee on Taxation, which is essentially the nonpartisan official taxation goalkeeper for Congress. Um, Moreover, because many of these tax breaks expire in just 10 years, um, in that period of time, 20 million households with income below $200,000 will see a tax increase by then. I, I think we should also... Uh, put a couple of things in in perspective here, because again, a lot of this is getting glossed over. Under the current proposal, your deduction for tax preparation expenses goes away. 
your deduction for medical expenses disappears. If you relocate for a job, your deduction for moving expenses disappears. Casualty loss deduction, with the exception of for hurricanes, disappears. So if you lost your home in the recent fires, any casualty losses there, that's not deductible. State and local income tax deduction disappears. State and local sales tax deduction disappears. For many of us in the Bay Area, that's 10%. Deduction for interest on home equity loans. So you thought you were clever by moving that money over and uh, perhaps refinancing some of your revolving charge cards, things of that sort, unsecured debt into a home equity loan. You could take advantage of the deductibility. That goes bye-bye. Also, deduction for work-related employee expenses. So if you have to buy shoes or uniforms for work, things of this sort, that deductibility disappears. And while property taxes, yes, will remain deductible, only up to $10,000. I did some math. And if you own a median-priced home in Santa Clara County, that price, I'm going to redo my math here, You're paying north of $20,000 a year in property taxes. That's 1.5% per annum, plus all the little bond measures and add-on for this school district thing and that thing. So you're probably talking $22,000 a year. Less than half of that is going to be deductible. Now, your mortgage interest will remain deductible, but only for mortgages of $500,000 or less. Right now, it's a million. And, well, yes, you're going to see a doubling almost of the uh, the baseline deduction. Uh, the personal exemption will go away. Uh, that will impact you by $4,000 of additional exposure. And at the end of the day, losing these personal exemptions means that we would wind up paying $1.56 trillion more in taxes over the next 10 years years. By the way, this also hits hard the education arena. Right now, you can deduct up to $2,500 of interest on loans for qualified higher education expenses under the new bill. That disappears. If your employer provides you education assistance, uh, that education assistance up to $5,200 per year that's currently excluded from income, that goes away. And interest on U.S. savings bonds excluded from income if used to pay qualified higher education expenses, that also disappears. The three together means a collective increase in federal taxes paid of $47.5 billion. Dick Samuels, the vice president at Moody's Investors Service, said the Senate bill will, quote, had a negative overall for state and local government finances, and the overall negative effect will be felt most sharply in high-tax states such as California, New York, New Jersey, etc. The top 1% of Californians will receive an average 14000 annual tax cut, while the bottom 60% on average will pay more taxes to the federal government. <laughs> and, of course, there's been a little bit of... Uh, strapping to the capizios on, even by those who have pledged, oh no, your taxes are not going to go up. 
uh, to wit, and I'm quoting here, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said on MSNBC, nobody in the middle class is going to get a tax increase, close quote. House Speaker Paul Ryan called it a tax cut for everybody, that in an interview with Rush Limbaugh, and said that every single person would see a reduction in tax rates. And Vice President Pence championed the proposal as an across-the-board tax cut. Yeah. Well, in fact, millions of people stand to see higher tax bills because of the elimination or curtailment of these deductions that I've just discussed. And most of us are going to see tax increases even more so in 10 years to help pay for all of this. By the way, there were three California Republicans that voted against this proposal. Tom McClintock, Dana Rohrbacher, and Daryl Issa. All three said they opposed the bill because it increases the tax burden on Californians. And it certainly does. And it seems as if some people are content by saying, well, other states, other people, you know, they've been paying a lot. So now it's time for California to pay its quote unquote fair share, although certainly overwhelmingly we send more tax dollars to Washington, D.C. than many other states combined. Meanwhile, though, multinational corporations will see major benefits from the tax bill. Aside from slicing the corporate tax rate from the current 35% to 20%, companies will have to pay little or no taxes on profits earned overseas. And by the way, all the deductions that they enjoy, none of that's going to change whatsoever. And I tell you where they're not worried about this. New Census Bureau report out. Five richest counties in the country are all suburbs of Washington, D.C. 547. Look at traffic right now. Michael Bennett's got an update. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the conversation. We're here at 552. You know, uh, even the casual observer, I think, to uh, watching our country doesn't even take a, somebody at the level and inside of an Alexander de Tocqueville to conclude that Americans value and vigorously defend the Bill of Rights in our country, all 26 of them. Well, maybe with the exclusion of the, uh, the, the what was it, the 18th Amendment? I think it was the Volstead Act. Yeah. But generally, we, we value all 26, um, e- even though some former members uh, or uh, folks that were running for our U.S. Senate didn't think that that was the case. And, and amongst chiefest those, I think, is the First Amendment that protects our freedom of speech. Toward that end, it raises some concerns over the Maine Civil Rights Act that seems to completely skirt, if not throw, the First Amendment out. To tell us more about how this impacts the First Amendment freedom of speech rights of pro-lifers, we're joined by constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Degas. I guess, Brad, we don't value all 26, maybe 25 of the uh, Bill of Rights, the the amendments and articles. (laughs) Yes, yes. I, I... It's, uh, it is just, uh, somewhat frustrating when we see uh, the Constitution not completely respected uh, at times, that's, that's for sure. But uh, that's what's happened in uh, the state of Maine, uh, Craig, where they decided to uh, pass a law and that uh, allows the, the government to, uh, uh, to, uh, to arrest uh, people who are 
providing noise outside, say, like a uh, uh, an abortion clinic, uh, with the intent of being hostile to uh, the, uh, the the abortions taking place. But if the if the messaging is in favor of abortions, uh, then that speech is okay. So it's it's a real serious situation, and it's now uh, going before the Supreme Court. And originally, the first federal district court judge said, "Hey, this is unconstitutional. The government can't be in favor of one kind of of one viewpoint over another viewpoint. That's not freedom of speech." Then the the uh, circuit court uh, reversed, and now it's uh, headed to the Supreme Court. And we at Pacific Justice Institute filed a friend of the court brief in favor of protecting the the pastor who was. Uh, wrongfully denied that freedom to, uh, to preach and to speak. And, you know, what's ironic about this, we know certainly that under uh, under very limited situations, uh, not every aspect of freedom of speech is protected. For example, we know that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater and claim that you're exercising your First Amendment rights and expect to create panic and get away with it. But what seems to be ironic about this so-called uh, Maine Civil Rights Act is it, it's suggesting that, uh, what should we say, here, that if you yell fire in a crowded theater, uh, that's illegal, but if you yell assassin or hurricane, that's okay, suggesting that there's two different types of speech, and some are acceptable and some are not, under the same set of circumstances that is singularly divided by the profile values or intent of the people that's making that speech. Am I I right? You're absolutely right. The bottom line, if the speech is pro-abortion or pro-choice or pro-death, as many of us look at it, uh, then that's protected speech. But if it's pro-life speech, uh, then it's then it's not protected speech based on the, this kind of a language. of it. They call it the Maine Civil Rights Act, which is such a, <laughs> a, a terrible name because that's what it's doing, is it's trampling on basic free speech civil rights. And at the core, this is really something designed, is it not, to cater to organizations like Planned Parenthood that don't want pro-life people out in front of their clinics on a Saturday, essentially interrupting business by potentially praying aloud or maybe using bullhorns to encourage women uh, to choose life, that somehow uh, that would be what? Interruptive enough to their business that the state of Maine decided that they were going to pass some bogus uh, civil rights act in order to protect those businesses or those abortion mills. Uh, that's that's exactly what they've done. This is clearly, I believe, the the handiwork of of abortion mills. Uh, I know I'm pretty confident uh, that uh, Planned Parenthood uh, wasn't just neutral about this. Uh, and you so, think? Uh, <laughs> so, so this was not, you know, from day one, this this law wasn't uh, intended to be, um, you know, benevolent and, and, and fair to everyone. From the, the day one, its intent was to attack pro-life speech, exclamation mark, and that's just what they've done. And now we've got a ch- great chance for the Supreme Court uh, to uh, to rule and, and uh, correctly on this, if if they don't rule correctly, and that's why we at Pacific Justice Institute filed a front of the court brief in this case. If they don't rule correctly, uh, then they, it is a green light for other states, predominantly blue states like California, uh, to copy the statute in an attempt to shut down the speech of those who are pro-life, but also be inspired and endowed to pass other laws that uh, will uh, eliminate or uh, criminalize other 
uh, forms of speech, perhaps expressions of faith, that uh, that the, the, the state or the government doesn't like. And that's so, so dangerous uh, that we at Pacific Justice here are taking this very seriously and hoping that, uh, that those sitting on the Supreme Court presently uh, will also take it to heart and understand that the ramifications here. This is clearly a slippery slope, as you suggest, Counselor. And I, I guess what I'm struggling with is what was in this measure, this bill, this law that made the First Circuit Court of Appeals decide that somehow this would pass constitutional muster? I mean, they, they've upheld the statute. What was their argument? Well, the, the circuit, uh, excuse me, yeah, the, the circuit court, uh, you know, ruled the way they did um, with the, the thinking that it's, uh, they, they, they tried to, to skirt this in a way so that it was not uh, viewpoint-based, but merely just, um, just you know, noise out there that's, uh, you know, just disrupting. It, you know, it could be any noise. Someone could be having any, any, any purpose or you know, but the key language here is intends. It's only speech with that it intends to, uh, with the delivery to, um, to inhibit the delivery of, 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 of services like abortions. Um, and so that how they got, try to get around it, I think, is, is uh, pretty amusing. Uh, and I think that the, the first judge, the federal district court, he got, they got it right. Uh, you know, he ruled that, that no, this, it's, it's based on intent. Uh, and the viewpoint of the speaker, and uh, and it's, it's government showing preference for one speech versus another speech, and that's not why we have the, the free speech clause of the First Amendment. It's not to be able to speak so long as government likes you and likes what you're saying. Uh, if that was the case, we wouldn't need the First Amendment, and I'm pretty confident that at the end of the day, and hopeful that the Supreme Court uh, will see it the same way and uh, strike it down decisively is unconstitutional. Well, and of course, this goes not only to questions with regard to First Amendment viability, but even the notion that somehow government is in a, has the capacity to judge our thoughts. What was your intent in all of this? Um, and if the intent doesn't match our preconceived notion, specific, specifically and singularly on the topic of abortion, well, then we're just not going to allow you to engage in that speech. Wow. Uh, you'd almost think a decision yeah. like that would come out of the Ninth Circuit, but, you know, uh, apparently here on the uh, West Coast, we, we don't have any, uh, you know, we don't have a corner on the market when it comes to uh, uh, judicial stupidity. I appreciate the update. Thank you so much uh, for staying on top of this, sharing it with our listeners here in Northern California, Brad, and uh, as always, keep up the good work. There is Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. More information about their great work online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. Six o'clock from KFAX. And that sound means it's time to get you an update on traffic here. Midway point in the program. Let's find out what's going on out there on this Wednesday. Michael Bennett stands by with the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.